Hey there, welcome back to Confessions of a Recovering Hot Mess with me, your host, Bethany Sisteric. And I want you to know, I only have eyes for me. Today, we'll be talking about what happens when we only focus inward and how it changes our relationship with God and those around us. I also want to take a look at some key players in the Bible who fell into this trap along with sharing my own struggles. I think we can all relate on some level to what these Bible characters go through, maybe not to the same extent, but if we're being honest with ourselves, we're all learning the same lessons along the way. So first things first, let's take a look at some of our Bible heroes, shall we? Adam and Eve might feel a tad on the nose here, but they seem like the logical place to start. God created a perfect design, a garden jam-packed with everything one could possibly need, and only one rule existed. Don't eat anything from this one tree. A few years ago, when I was reading Genesis 3, I had this mind-blowing thought. I love it when God does that, don't you? Anyway, I realized I'd spent so much time on the negative part of that premise. One rule, don't eat this. And then they broke it, so now we all experience and know evil. Way to go, you jerks. But when I prepared myself to read it again, God spoke to my heart. The tree was not solely the knowledge of evil, but of good and evil. So God's perfect design was for us to never know evil, but it was also for us to never know good. We were only ever supposed to know what is without knowing anything else. Now, maybe you already knew that, but for me, it was like, mind blown. But Eve's reaction, which led to Adam's sin, was a direct result of a split second thought of inward focus. I imagine she was thinking something like, well, I want to know what God knows. God is amazing and I love him. He's my friend. How could it be a bad thing to be more like him? That's kind of what we do, isn't it? We rationalize our choices. In the garden, it could have been being more like God can't be bad. But today it's, well, his grace is sufficient. So he'll forgive me for watching this X-rated site or for that one night stand or for lying or for these drugs. We abuse his grace with rationalization because the reality is we don't particularly care what God wants because instant gratification just feels too good. I'll be forgiven, so who cares? We'll definitely get into why you should care. But first, let's visit the next ones on the list. Saul and David. Man, oh man, their stories are quite twisty. But when you break it down, they both kind of did similar things. They both allowed inward thinking to drive forward their actions. For Saul, it was jealousy of David that led his heart to turn away from God. He never acted against God, but he took his eyes and heart off him and turned both to comparison and jealousy. In that season of Saul's life, a spirit of torment came on Saul that was sent by God. Yeah, I didn't see that coming either. 
this tormentor assisted Saul in losing his mind, which chilled him out for about five seconds. (laughs) Then he chases David all over God's creation and hopes to kill him. Side note, how that story ends is wild and will definitely be something we visit much more in detail down the road. But long story short, Saul never catches David, and he dies by his own sword after being mortally wounded in battle. Then there's David. He did every single thing the Lord told him to until he didn't. One day, David decides he can do whatever he wants as king. Now, during a battle, it is customary and expected for the king to stay with his troops, but David chose to stay in the comforts of the palace instead. He was a well-respected king who formerly led from the front and now reclined in the way back. It was here in this self-satisfying place he set himself up for his greatest sin, and it would cost him greatly. He saw a beautiful woman and lusted after her. Although David knew she was married, he slept with her anyway. And when he found out she was pregnant with his child, he had her husband killed. This is a very short summary, and we just might have to unpack this story more too. But as a result of his sin, David's son is born, gets sick, and dies as a child. There is one very big distinction between the two here, and that is, any guesses? Drum roll, please. One sought after the Lord's heart, and the other didn't. When God brought his grievances to David through the prophet Nathan, David acknowledged his sin and begged for the Lord's forgiveness. He turned his eyes back to the Lord, where Saul never did. Then there's my boy Peter. Now, Peter had moments of wild and crazy faith, but we also see this underlying need to protect Jesus and the other disciples. He kind of goes about it like protecting them was his assigned detail, not discipleship. So Jesus reminds him over and over, who you are is not who I've called you to be. But good old Pete seems to struggle with this concept quite a bit. Anyone else relate? I do. (laughs) Fast forward to a pivotal moment for Peter. In Matthew 14, all 12 disciples are in a boat caught in a storm, and they see this glowing figure walking on the water coming toward them. And at first they think it's a ghost, but Jesus calls out and tells them to not be afraid. Now, here's where Peter has his biggest testament of faith by saying, hey, if it's really you, then call me out and let me walk on the water with you. Now, I do want to make mention here what happens next is amazing, but it could have been so much more because Jesus says, come. He never says, Peter, come or only Peter, let's go. He just says, come. And the sad part is this moment, only one of the 12 had enough faith to step out and walk on the water. The other 11 stayed in awe, not realizing they could have experienced the same miracle Peter did. 
Within a few moments, we see Peter go from the highest high to the lowest low. And this is not the first or the last time this occurs. This roller coaster faith is something we watch him struggle with over and over and over again. So he makes it out on the water and he has this realization of the magnitude of the water at his feet. The sea is too big. Maybe in the storm, he couldn't see the boat. And looking around, there's no sign of land. And all of a sudden, he has a shift in his faith. And the sea around him becomes bigger than the God calling him out there. And as a result, he sinks. Now, there is one thing I want to point out that I noticed while putting this together, and that's when we operate in faith and we have stepped out into uncharted territory. We are operating outside the boundaries of what we see as possible. Our logical minds struggle to see past what we can't understand. But in order to stay above the water, we can't focus on the things at our feet. We must remain focused on Jesus who calls us out here in the first place. Full transparency, I suck at this concept. Walking in faith is hard. And for a recovering hot mess and control freak, it can be terrifying and feel impossible to let go and let God do his thing. Now, what do all of these stories have in common? They all thought they had things under control and they all had a moment where what they felt or wanted surpassed what God wanted from and for them. And this is a concept everyone can relate to. We all move forward in things we know we shouldn't. Anxiety plagues us when we are moved into a season we don't feel in control And fear paralyzes us and forces our eyes off Jesus. For me, I actually came through a similar storm in my life. And sadly, this is a storm I've been through several times. Money is such a hard topic to discuss because no one wants to be the guy focused on something like that. And you certainly don't want to love money because Jesus says that Loving that is the root of all evil. Yikes! But money is an issue for most of us right now. For me, like I've shared, the last six years have been a lot of lessons learned, and a major one is trusting the Lord for provision. I felt like I was doing that really well. I learned to manage my money a lot better, and I learned the value of stretching every penny. So I came into a season of being able to breathe easier because I was working two jobs outside of the ministry the Lord asked me to build, and I was bringing in some money that helped immensely. The bills were finally being paid without stress, and although we didn't have much outside of bills, at least I no longer felt like a failure or like some loser unable to provide the basic needs of my children. Well, one job ended for the summer. And luckily, I was able to put aside a nice little cushion to get us through until the next door opened. Two weeks ago, I was doing my best to ignore the growing anxiety as money dwindled. But it was definitely there. So then I heard about two possible jobs. And I went to reach out and God loudly says, 
No. Now I tried to negotiate and convince God that this was the best thing for me to do. When I do that, I imagine he looks at me like, seriously? (laughs) Then he said no again, but this time it was firmer. So I said, fine. And I moved forward through my habitual responses rather than the fruit of my spiritual ones. You ever do that? I do it more than I should probably ever admit. (laughs) I reverted back to things I used to bring me comfort and help me survive the trauma I've endured. I stopped working on the projects God entrusted me and started watching TV instead. I threw myself into other things around the house like meal prep and starting several cleaning projects, but never really finishing any of them. I stayed up way too late and then was mad the next day because I was tired. And the big humdinger, I tried to solve this problem on my own. In the midst of the stress I was carrying, my attitude turned sour. I felt my patience dwindle, and although I'm not even close to the same person I was, even on my worst day, I saw the old me pop up sporadically. I yelled more, I threw down some cuss words, I felt frustrated, I ignored things I didn't want to address, and I'm sure the list goes on and on. Eventually, a person in my life, who is a godsend, by the way, called me out on it. She said, sounds like you're kind of throwing an unintentional temper tantrum. God's not doing what you want or feel you need. So in turn, you're not going to do what he's asked of you. Almost like I'm not going to scratch your back until you provide for mine. Gulp. (laughs) I imagine the look on your face is similar to the look on mine that day. I felt almost instant shame. I didn't mean to do that or act like that, but my habits took over. And worst of all, I didn't even recognize it was happening. So once she pointed that out, God and I had to have a heart to heart. I had to come before him and repent. I asked him to help me do better, to give me the strength to walk this path he's placed me on. There were a lot of tears, mostly mine. Okay, fine. They were all mine. But in this place of surrender, I felt the warmth of the Lord wash over me. I asked him to breathe new life into me. And the next morning, I woke up with peace. Within a few days, I was able to walk without anxiety, and I felt like a new person. Now, I've had experiences where the Lord calmed me instantly, And I've had experiences where he walks me through the feelings rather than shutting them off. And he uses his divine discretion to move in the way that will benefit us most. Do we always know the consequences? Not always. But it does always fall flawlessly into place through his perfect will. In the midst of learning to trust God, I've also had to learn that the hardships he takes me through aren't a punishment for what I've done or not done. It's not God getting back at me for anything. It's designed to make me stronger so I can walk down the path he's laid at my feet. Now listen up, because I don't know who needs to hear this. But your current circumstances don't define you. They are not a punishment from God. Sometimes hardship comes as consequences to our choices 
and sometimes it's brought on by the sin and evil that fills this world to the brim. And other times it's the Lord leading us into the wilderness so we may grow with and in him. But no matter how it comes about, the Lord works all things out for good and his glory. He can take the worst of the worst and create something in and through us that will shine out to those around us. Now, why should we care so much about inward thinking? I mean, doesn't God want us to be happy? Well, friend, I hate to be the bearer of bad news, but God doesn't deal in happiness. Being happy is a fleeting thing. It's unsustainable in this life. We live in a world run by the devil, which means the idea of being happy all the time is just ridiculous. Now, joy, that's a different story because joy comes from the Lord and is sustained by him alone. I imagine when Peter first stepped out of the boat, he was overjoyed and amazed by this incredible thing happening. If he had just stayed plugged into Jesus, the joy would have remained and peace would have been abundant. But he detached his focus from Jesus and placed it on the water being whipped and blown in the storm they were caught in. Joy just simply couldn't survive there. Peace couldn't remain when anxiety and fear pushed it out. Which begs the question, how do we get joy and peace? And how do we keep it intact? And lastly, how do we walk and live in it? I really feel like there's a chapter in Romans that hits the nail on the head here. And that's Romans 12. It really breaks down what it looks like to be a living sacrifice to God. And although we don't have time to read the whole chapter here today, I want to encourage you to do so before you go to bed tonight. And being a living sacrifice, we take our eyes off ourselves, our wants, our demands, and place them all at the foot of the cross. When we lay down every aspect of who we are, we realize the changes that need to be made to be who God created us to be so that we can mirror his reflection through us. Now, what do I mean by that? Doesn't Jesus accept me the way that I am? The answer to that is an astounding yes, but he also loves you too much to leave you there. He wants to rescue us from the bondage we've placed ourselves in so we can walk free in him. For example, the paralyzed man by the healing pool. Jesus didn't heal him and say, just go ahead and stay here, man, and just keep sitting here, keep trying to get to the water, but you're healed. So have a great one. No, Jesus told him to get up and walk and to take his mat and go. And that's what he's calling all of us to do. We don't have to stay the same person. We actually shouldn't stay the same person. And for us post-resurrection kids, right, we get the opportunity to freely come regardless of where we are in life. But I just want to encourage you that Jesus never intends to leave you in the bondage that you created for yourself. So the more that we act for ourselves 
And the less that we give to him, we just end up staying in the bondage that we've created, even though Jesus has set us free. And so it's our job to get up and walk. It's our job to get up and go from that place and not stay in the pit and not stay in the sin that we have been living in. We should be unwinding that with the Lord and walking that out. Luckily, we get the gift of grace and mercy. So when we mess up, we get the opportunity to come back and say, I'm sorry. But we also shouldn't be abusing that grace either. Now, the consequences in the Garden of Eden were high. God brought redemption to Adam and Eve through a son born to them when Adam was 130 years old, named Seth. Through this family line, Noah is born. For Saul, redemption never fully came because Saul refused to lay down his jealousy and the threat he felt from David. David, on the other hand, had to endure losing a precious child. But the Lord redeemed him and brought peace to his grieving heart simply because he was willing to turn back to God. Throughout the Psalms, we read David's gut-wrenching plea for the Lord to purify his heart, to forgive him, to make him a better man and king. Sure, it took being called out by a prophet sent by God to get there, but that's the thing about this amazing God we serve. He's willing to come after us when we've strayed. And with Peter, Jesus didn't leave him to drown in the water, and he also didn't leave him unchanged. For Peter, it took time to unwind the habits he created to survive. But through time, attention, correction, and a continuous rhythm of repentance, his heart, mind, and attitude changed. I think the important key factor to add here is how we accomplish maintaining hope in hard times, peace and persecution, and joy through the junk we walk through. Short answer is, we can't. In our own strength, we are weak, and we will react from our flesh rather than our righteousness. Now, if you're a stubborn and self-reliant person like me, it's easy to believe we have to figure this out. But let this be a reminder, we don't. God has a plan, and it's good, even if you can't possibly understand how what you're facing today can ever be good. Sometimes it just takes walking through it to build the faith needed for the next steps in life. So if you're struggling, keep holding on, my friend, and ask the Lord to bring you the strength to stay where he has placed you or to move in the direction he's laid before you. Whatever it is you're facing, know that Jesus is with you and surrounding every part of your journey. Remember, one step at a time gets you over the hump of hardship. I promise. Hey, thanks for hanging out with me today. And do me a favor. Please share this podcast with anyone that comes to your heart or that you think would benefit from what we learned about today. I'm excited to take this journey with you and to grow together in our faith as the Lord speaks to us all through his beautiful and powerful word. Join me next week 
when we explore almost a part two to this episode and learn what a bond servant is and how to be one for Jesus. Have an amazing day.